Welcome to the Money Tree Investing Podcast. Stock market, wealth, personal finance, value stocks. Invest in your life. Welcome to this week's episode of Money Tree Investing Podcast. We really appreciate you joining us today. My name is Kirk Chisholm, and I'm going to be the host of today's show. We have a real exciting show for you today. Uh, we're going to be talking with Doug Casey, who is probably one of the more interesting men I've ever met. And um, I'm, I'm sure you'll probably agree after this interview. So I want to really dig into some of his secrets and what makes him tick. Before we get to our guest, uh, I want you to listen to our sponsor for a second. Are you looking for a better way to invest in market turmoil? Consider Betterment. Betterment is a robo-advisor that uses time-tested principles of modern portfolio theory to help you manage your wealth and reach your financial goals. With Betterment, you don't have to worry about what the market's doing on a day-to-day basis. Instead, Betterment allows you to use the stock market to consistently build wealth. For more information, visit moneytreepodcast.com slash Betterment. A lot of investors use Betterment, but it doesn't mean it's the right fit for you. So do your own research. Check out moneytreepodcast.com slash Betterment to see if Betterment is the right fit for you. So today we're talking with Doug Casey. How are you doing today, Doug? Quite good. It's a um, cold, rainy day here in Uruguay, where I am at the moment, but I have a fire and uh, a couple dogs to join me, so um, I'm very comfortable. Nice. What takes you to Uruguay right now? Well, I spend um, over half the year between here and Argentina, actually three quarters of the year. I uh, still travel around the world quite a bit, not as much as I used to, and I spend the northern in summer in uh, Colorado. So that kind of sums it up. I've been to 155 countries, most of them many times, but um, kind of been there, done that at this point. 155, how many are there? Is it 230? Uh, it, it depends on how you define a country. You've got colonies, you've got autonomous regions, you've got, um, I don't know, you, maybe you want to say members of the UN. There's various types of political entities, uh, about 230 for practical purposes. But um, you've got to remember that most of the countries in the world are artificial constructs. They were created completely out of whole cloth with no relationship to the linguistic or religious or ethnic groups that uh, constitute them. So my guess is in the future... If we were to look down the road 50 years, I'll guess we have 500 different countries. Well, that would certainly be something. And uh, I think it would make school a lot harder for our kids. <laughs> School's too easy for them and basically a waste of time in my view. But Yeah, we'll definitely get to that after because I, 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 love, I love hearing about your points of view because you're, you're a very original thinker, which is actually one of the reasons why I wanted you on the show because I, I think we, we go through life with a lot of you know, regurgitated thought that we hear from other people. And, and you're such an original thinker that I think a lot of listeners will get some benefit from how you kind of look at things. So let's talk about your hobbies. You play polo, you race, competitive shooting, skydiving, beating with dictators. Uh, <laughs> last one kind of fascinated me. How, how does meeting with dictators fit into your list of hobbies? Well, it started out uh, more or less by accident many years ago when I was visiting Dominica which is a small island country in the Caribbean. And um, I hatched a scheme at the time to um, give them a plan for radically free marketizing their little dog country and uh, make a lot of money in the process. So it it started there. But uh, I've been to about a dozen countries talking to the guy that runs it, preferably military dictators. They're easiest to talk to and deal with. I've never gotten anywhere, had some wonderful adventures, great cocktail party stories, but it's my hobby to um, assist these guys in these little third world hellholes have bought every stupid idea that's come down the pike to them from Europe. Why shouldn't they buy something that I think is intelligent uh, that I'm trying to sell them? Yeah. So one of your ideas, which actually was fascinating to me, because you're an original thinker, I'm sure no one else has come up with this idea. I've always heard that you've wanted to take a country public, not a company, a country. How do you do something like that? That just seems so far out of the realm of reality. Like, how would you go about it? Well, actually, it's taking the government public. Now, as an anarcho-capitalist, I don't believe in the state as an entity. I don't think it serves a useful purpose. I think it's, by its very nature, 
are coercive and destructive. So it's a dead hand upon society. So how, how do we get rid of it? Uh, especially in a world where people think that democracy is a good thing. And of course, democracy is just a fraud. What I suggest when I go to a country, where, especially one where the government owns everything, most of the land, parastatal corporations like the post office and the airline and uh, the ports and so forth, the roads, I suggest to them, look, why don't we take 100% of all the government's assets, which theoretically belong to the people, and initially put them in one corporation. And then we'll distribute the shares, 70% of the shares, to every man, woman, and child in the country. So now the people have actual, tangible, fungible ownership of the country, the government's assets. We'll take 10% of the shares and put them in trust for the next generation born over the next 20 years. We'll take 10% of the shares and take them public in New York, London, and Tokyo. And depending on the country, in today's world, you could raise five, fifty, a hundred billion dollars to capitalize this corporation. We'll take ten percent of the shares and we'll distribute them to people that are of significant help to the corporation. This is traditional. And at this point, I look at the guy that's running the country and I say, "Well, people like you, for instance, and me." <laughs> and that always gets their attention. Now, there's much else that has to be done. You have to get rid of, every country has a deep state. These are cronies that are basically using the government as a method to steal from the people. And that's actually the main function of governments everywhere, absolutely in third world countries, but in the U.S. too. And my belief is that if a country was to put this plan into effect and totally free marketize itself as well, this wouldn't include getting rid of their taxes, getting rid of their regulations, making it like Hong Kong on steroids. The country would become the most prosperous place in the world in a decade. And there are examples of where this has happened. Uh, Hong Kong being a good one, Singapore being another one, Dubai being another one. So that's basically what I pitched to them. Now, I've never succeeded, and I don't expect to succeed for all kinds of reasons, mainly because these places are generally snake pits where nobody trusts anybody else. And uh, they'd rather just have their bowl of gruel now than uh, the prospect of a big steak in six months. It's just human psychology. But I do this for my own entertainment, not because I want to, because I expect to win. Also because I think it's good karma. Well, I would think that money generally... <laughs> Money usually drives people's uh, motivation. I would think if you kind of spread that 10% around some of the other cronies, then you'd probably still be able to get your country off the ground. I mean, I, I would imagine there's countries out there that this would work for. I mean, how many, how many times have you tried this? Mm, different degrees of try, but I'd say there were a dozen countries. I spent a, a month in Suriname back in the days when it was a military dictatorship doing this. Met everybody that was anybody in the country. And that was fascinating. I've tried this in Haiti, which is a perennial basket case, and it's going to stay that way. Tried this in Cameroon. Tried it in Siskai. Uh, there's other places I could go. I was going to try this in the Solomon Islands. That would have been interesting, but that didn't get off the ground. I mean, I could go to Sao Tome and Principe next week and do it, but I've kind of been there and done that. So, Well, it's, it's certainly an interesting concept. I'd certainly love to hear more at a, at a future endeavor because that's, uh, you know, I, I think we all think of business in a certain way. And when you kind of think outside the box, it certainly raises people's imagination for other things that could happen. I'm sure a place like Goldman Sachs would love to do something like this. I mean, God knows they've done other things that may not have been uh, good karma, but uh, or at least that's what the newspapers tell me. But I would think that certainly something like that is something they could uh, that could drive the have you ever thought of getting a team together and doing something like that, or are you just doing yeah. it for fun? Yeah, actually, I have. And um, uh, Suriname was actually my biggest single adventure in this way in terms of time. And, um, and the way I got, got to Suriname is itself a fascinating story, but I, I'm not going to go into it now because it's, it's, uh, it's all about mercenaries and CIA guys and all kinds of weird stuff like that. But um, in Suriname, which at the time had a blocked currency, which meant that if you could buy 
their uh, local currency on the black market with almost free living there. So what I was going to do was take out full page newspaper ads, TV ads, radio ads to explain this project to the people, to go bottom up and also talk to all the top guys in society and explain it to them and take it top down. But you can't do this as a one man show. So you do need a team. You're quite correct. And the question was recruiting a team. So I called up the usual suspects when I returned to the U.S. and said, you want to join this party with me? And I was absolutely shocked and disgusted by the answers. Things like, oh, gee, sounds like fun, but the university will never give me two weeks off. Or isn't it dangerous? Or can't I get in trouble with the U.S. government if I try to do something like this? It turned out that all the professional libertarians I knew were basically what you call limp <laughs> uh, It was a waste of time. Yeah. So well, that's for that. I'm not surprised. I think when, when people get outside the realm of their comfort zone, they tend to uh, just shy away from risk. I, I certainly know a few people that, that would probably take you up on that offer, but I think for the most part, you're probably right. As, as human beings, we don't well, necessarily, we take risk uh, when we feel comfortable and not when, not when it's risky. You know, that's right. Well, there are a number of people that are apparently trying to do new country projects now and have been for the last 30 or 40 years that I can recall. But none of them ever get anywhere. But as Mao said, let a hundred flowers bloom. And maybe somebody will get lucky at some point along the line. You, you mean like in Sealand? <laughs> I don't know if you heard of that uh, project. Yes, I actually <laughs> met uh, Prince Roy Bates of Sealand. We spent a day together. That's the um, abandoned um, aircraft radar tower from World War II. Yep. I guess it still exists. You know, there have been lots of things like this. I mean, um, Gary Davis tried to start his own private government with the World Service Authority, which still exists. I got a passport from Gary. Interesting story uh, about his background. And I actually traveled to a half a dozen countries on it successfully, and another half a dozen unsuccessfully, which was actually more interesting. We got taken to back rooms with uh, government officials and so forth. So it's all just an adventure, quite frankly. I don't take it, take it seriously at this point because the world has a life of its own. And trying to make a change, even in a small part of the world, is almost impossible. Trying to change a country is like trying to turn around a 10-mile-long super tanker. It's very hard to do unless you kill a bunch of people. And that's to be avoided if you possibly can. Incidentally, talking about that, uh, Augusto Pinochet, for some reason, has been promoted as one of the most horrible dictators in world history. You'll recall that he was the one that um, got rid of um, Allende in Chile in, what was it, 1971 or 70, 71 or 73, I forget. He probably killed a couple thousand people, but in the process, he totally reformed the Chilean economy. He brought in the so-called Chicago boys, who are not my favorites, but they're not bad either, and um, turned Chile from being a backwater, which did nothing but mine copper, to being by far the most prosperous country in Latin America today. But everybody hates him, says he's a terrible dictator, horrible human being. But this shows how ignorant most people are, because although it's true and unfortunate that Pinochet killed a couple thousand people, this is nothing compared to what the Argentine generals did. They probably killed 40,000, even in Uruguay which is the most quiet backwater in uh, South America. Uh, they probably, the generals here probably killed a thousand people. In Brazil, they killed tens of thousands of people. Nobody talks about them, and they all got away scot-free. But uh, Pinochet is the devil himself because he instituted free market reforms. So there you have it. Yeah, I think a lot of people in this country <laughs> look at anything outside of the U.S. as not the U.S., you know, there's there's not a lot of global thinking here. You know, people don't generally move all that much. I mean, certainly people may move across the country, but I don't run into too many people who travel internationally as a hobby or they make a sport of it, if you will, to learn new things in different cultures. So I think in our culture, we, we kind of are restricted in that way. But you're you're kind of the opposite. I mean, you have this website, internationalman.com, which you run. Can you tell us about that site? Because I'm, I'm curious. I mean, you are, I kind of look at you as the international man. So what's that site about? The International Man is, was the title of my first book. I wrote it in 1976. 
And it, it was um, a guidebook to how to make the most of your personal freedom and financial opportunity around the world. Because my view is that um, the best survival strategy for a human is to not act like a plant and be rooted to one, one place just because that's where you happen to have been born. And that's what most people do. Uh, Americans are um, some of the worst offenders that way because the U.S. historically has been the most prosperous and one of the freest places in the world. America thinks that Americans think the world begins and ends at their borders. Well, they're in for a rude awakening. So the internationalman.com, it's uh, about helping people expand their horizons, investment opportunities abroad, international living opportunities. It's a big world out there. So that's what that site's about, the people that want to broaden their horizons. And incidentally, my first book, The International Man, after which the site's named, uh, subsequently became the largest selling book in the history of Rhodesia, which is a title that will uh, never be taken from it. Right, because Rhodesia no longer exists, right? <laughs> I was in Zimbabwe. And I went there at the height of the war and um, looked up a couple of publishers in the Yellow Pages. There were two. Interviewed them, got along with one of them. And it was a runaway success for both of us because at the time there were about 250,000 Europeans there. Now there are maybe, nobody knows for sure, three, four, five thousand at most left in, um, in Zimbabwe. So uh, opportunities like that can be created anywhere if you're entrepreneurial. I'd like to believe that, although I don't need to do it, if I was 30 again and wanted to make a fortune, I would definitely go to Africa. I like to go where there's an on-level playing field. I don't like level playing fields. It makes it easier. So um, I'd go to Africa. And if you're clever, within a couple of weeks, you can be sitting down with the president of any of those worthless countries. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I kind of see you as the guy who you could drop into a country with no money, you know, no supplies, and you'd come out a wealthy man. How do you do stuff like that? Like, how do you kind of walk into these, as you call them, hell holes in countries that we would perceive as dangerous and you come out looking spick and span and you come out looking great? So how do you do that? Like, what's your mindset going in and how do you kind of approach investing in those countries? Well, here's what I've always done. I don't do this anymore because I don't have to. When I was still wet behind the ears, I'd go into the capital city of a country, open up the yellow pages, which still existed in those days. And I generally look at lawyers and real estate agents. Why? Because uh, certainly in those countries and in the U.S., they tend to be centers of influence. They know everybody. They have money. They know where the money is. And they'll give an appointment to anybody because they don't know who you are you might become a huge client. So I'd interview a bunch of these guys and wait for the law of large numbers to work for me. And maybe one out of three or four guys I'd talk to, we'd get along. They knew I was from out of town. I was entrepreneurial. They'd invite me home to dinner. They'd invite me to a party. That's the way I used to operate then. And I'd operate that way still today. I also have lots of interests. For instance, art, especially I'm not talking about the crap that they auction in New York for 50 or $100 million. This is, this is a mania. It's completely and totally insane. Um, I have my own criteria. I buy a lot of artwork. But you can get uh, wonderful pieces of, um, of art in these backward countries for not just pennies on the dollar, but sometimes fractions of a penny on the dollar. So I go to art galleries, and I know something about art, and I talk to the people. And, of course, people that buy art anywhere tend to be the richest and most sophisticated types. And uh, I'd always wind up getting invited to home to dinner with the family or to a party or something like that. And then one thing leads to another. Uh, it's important to have a broad base of knowledge and experience uh, when you're doing this type of thing because you've got to be interesting to the people. If you don't know anything and you haven't been anywhere, if you haven't done anything, why the hell should they want to talk to you? Well, they don't. So you have to make your own opportunities that way. But that's what I recommend to people that are entrepreneurial today. But I, I question one out of a thousand people who are even interested in hearing this will put the theory into practice because um, it's work. And um, most people aren't very entrepreneurial. They believe that a job is something that somebody gives you 
So uh, I tend to have a low opinion of uh, most of my fellow humans, quite frankly. Yeah. What's interesting is, I mean, you you have a lot of really interesting and unique worldviews, which, like I said, I think that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show, because you're you have viewpoints that I think everybody should appreciate, you know, whether they agree with you or not, that's up to them. But uh, I think it's always good to hear well-rounded views. What are some of the experiences that actually helped you shape your worldview? Because I'm sure you didn't pick it up from somebody else. Like, how did, how did your worldviews get shaped? Oh, goodness. I mean, I uh, counsel kids in high school not to go to college for many, many reasons. Um, not least of them is the, the, the obscene expense not least of which is the fact they're taking four years of time and a lot of money to um, listen to um, some person who got a job at the university blather at them for six hours a day. And most of the people, I've been a trustee of two separate colleges, so I've got some on-the-ground experience. Uh, most of the administration and teaching staff of almost all colleges in this country are cultural Marxists, socialists, social justice warriors, horrible people. And uh, it's just horrible for somebody out of, out of high school who doesn't know anything, and nobody just out of high school really knows anything, to be indoctrinated with this and pay for it. So um, when I went to college, very few people went to college, relatively speaking, to today. And uh, the um, intellectual and uh, cultural environment in colleges wasn't nearly as, not nearly as corrupt as it is today. But one thing that was valuable to me, I wouldn't have done it if I'd had good counsel in high school, but I didn't, like most kids, was just expected that people from uh, my high school and my class all went off to college. It was just like the next thing you did. I was too stupid to have thought it out then. But um, one good thing that I did do in college is I took a junior year abroad program Spent that time in France and Switzerland, but went all over Europe, too. Got into my first real entrepreneurial venture. Bought a Ferrari in Milano. I've always been a car guy from way back when. And uh, back in those days, like today, few people can afford a new Ferrari. But in Europe, there wasn't much of a middle class in the 60s, not like today. So if you could afford a Ferrari and you were through with it, you got rid of it, but there was no aftermarket for it. There's no middle class to absorb a used exotic car. So prices were very low, but in the U.S. it was a different story. <clears throat> so I bought a, a 250 GTE, drove it all around Europe for six months, sold it sight unseen to a guy in Ohio for more than I paid for it, enough to cover the shipping to um, the U.S. and everything. And then I figured, ah, now, if I do this properly this time, I can turn this into a business to make some serious money. Well, my first entrepreneurial venture ended badly because I, I got into a very serious accident when I was on a, uh, driving it up to Rotterdam to put it on the boat for New York. And I wound up spending six weeks in the hospital in Bern, Switzerland. But um, most of that time, actually, I spent talking to an ex-foreign legionnaire. And I don't know if you've ever met any foreign legionnaire refugees, but uh, a lot of them are scum of the earth and borderline criminals, but you get all kinds of people to join the legions, the most interesting military group in the world. And uh, that guy, his name was Ron Schneeberger, wanted to rob the National Bank of Haiti, which I thought was a, a really uh, wild idea, and he had a plan to do it. Anyway, long story. But it's things like that that get you thinking kind of out of the box, if you would. I don't recommend that. <laughs> yeah. Incidentally. Okay. It'd, okay. It'd, it'd be worse. I mean, it's interesting. Yeah. No, you, you kind of touch on a few, a few points, which I think I want to point out here for the listeners is, is the value of having, I guess what I would call a talent stack is not just having a, a narrow band of, of intelligence, but having a wide range of interests and education. And I, I hesitate to call it liberal arts education because I, I'm sure I know what your opinions would be, Doug, but <laughs> I went to a liberal arts college, so I know my opinions of it. But I think in many ways, it gives people a good, well-rounded viewpoint on things. So you, you, you don't have to look in such a narrow band. But I want to talk a little bit about, you, you started writing this series of fiction novels, which 
I find interesting. So for the listeners, if they don't know you, I, I know your Anne Rand is a is a kind of an inspiration to you, correct? How is she an inspiration for you? She uh, Anne Rand is a genius for the centuries, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, she wrote one of the um, two or three most important books I've ever read, a very short book, only about 100 or so pages, called The Virtue of Selfishness. I recommend everybody go out and buy a copy and read it. The book was um, such a breakthrough for me that I couldn't finish the first page without having to put it down. And I said, I can't believe anybody's actually written this. And it crystallized a lot of ideas in my mind. So, yeah, I'm a big fan of uh, Rand. But, um, and I actually got to meet her before she died and found she was a very charming person. Although uh, I'm assured she was not always a very charming person. But, you know, personality is one thing, ideas are another. But, um, you know, I made my reputation writing nonfiction books. Like Crisis Investing was the largest selling book of its year. And up to that time, the largest selling investment book in history. And then Strategic Investing, which was a stock market book, which came out in 1982. I'm proud to say right at the bottom of the stock market uh, uh, collapse. You know, I got the largest advance ever given for a financial book in those days. But I'm not going to do any more um, nonfiction books. Instead, I'm interested in doing novels because you can say things in novels that you best not say in nonfiction. So my co-author and I, John Hunt, he's a, a doctor who no longer wants to practice medicine. A lot of doctors don't want to practice medicine anymore because it's, well, another story. But we wrote the first of a series of seven novels reforming unjustly besmirched occupations. First was Speculator, where our hero, Charles Knight, who's only 23 at the time, goes off to Africa to look at a position he's gotten lucky on in the gold mining business. Because, of course, this is one of my areas of specialty is speculating crappy little mining companies. And it turns out he made a million dollars on it. He gets involved in a bush war. And I show how he turns it into 200 million. Then the government steals it all from him. He's unhappy. Seven years later, we find him as drug lord, which is the second of that, uh, that series. So after showing that a speculator, who most people hate, can be a very good and moral guy, he becomes a drug lord. And we show how a drug lord can actually be a good and moral and productive guy. And now we're working on the third book. Uh, he makes another couple hundred million dollars, and the government steals it from him again and puts him in jail, in addition, for a long time. Well, now he's kind of pissed off, and um, he becomes number three. We show the assassin, which is the title of the book coming out, hopefully before this year is over. An assassin can be a good guy, a political assassin. And it's a, uh, an examination of um, political assassination as a tool with um, taking another look at famous historical assassinations and how they're done, and good or bad. And so that's gonna be, it's going to be quite a good book. Then after that's finished, we're, we're starting to work on terrorists, where Charles is accused of being a terrorist. I have lots of views on terrorism. And then he goes back to Africa, where he becomes a warlord, show a war, how a warlord can be a good guy, and uh, turns this country of Gondwana into Singapore on steroids, going back to what we were talking about earlier. And then it gets really radical after that. So, <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm sure some of these ideas are a little extreme for some of the listeners, but I, I think it's what's fascinating. I have your first two books. I have them on my shelf right behind me. You know, what I find fascinating about the concept is the same, same thing that I found fascinating about Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, right? It's an interesting story in itself, but the way that she kind of puts in her her philosophies in it really just I mean I remember back in 2008 I'd read it in uh, early 2008 for the first time by the way even though it was sitting on my shelf for 15 years <laughs> it's a very intimidating book and so I never read it and I finally got around to it and then um, the financial crisis hit now all of a sudden it was a bestseller again I mean you know quote unquote all of a sudden right because the financial crisis hit I think it was a little too late for people to but everybody loved it because it made a lot of sense after the financial crisis. And, you know, I look at books like this and I say, well, what's fascinating is you're talking about the trade, you know, everybody's going to have their own dilemma about whether 
it's a moral thing or, or what have you. But what's interesting is just kind of your, you we're getting your philosophies in a story, which I think makes it more palatable to hear rather than just like, I guess Anne Rand was very famous for her Phil Donahue interview and a few others where <laughs> people hated her, but it was hard to argue with her points of view. It was really hard to get her, really hard to get her off her game. It was, it was fascinating to watch. Well, believe it or not, I had a full hour by myself on Phil Donahue too. And the timing was chosen very well. It was the day before the national elections in 1980. And um, it's on YouTube. So anybody can look it up. I was in good form as well. Yeah, I'll definitely put that in the show notes so people can find that. So before we get into investing, I want to talk about two other questions here. So I, I've heard I've heard you really uh, enjoy science fiction for your, your kind of reading list. What, why do you enjoy science fiction? Because um, it opens up the full landscape of the human imagination. You're not limited by a particular time and place. So um, science fiction is hugely underrated. It's like Western movies. People that don't like Western movies are, are basically people that I don't like because it shows they have the wrong kind of values. Same is true of science fiction, actually. So science fiction and Westerns are two of my favorite genre. But also about science fiction is that um, its predictive value is far, far superior to any of these think tanks, which are generally stultified and constipated I mean, think tanks about the future are basically worthless. If you, if you want some views that are actually more accurate as well as more interesting, read science fiction for a view of the way things are likely to shape up in the future. Same is true of sci-fi movies, I've got to say. I'm a big fan of movies as well. Yeah, I certainly love the science fiction aspect of just kind of thinking. And we have a lot of interesting writers out there that people can read. One of the ones I certainly am fascinated with, which this isn't science fiction necessarily, but Ray Kurzweil, I'm sure you've heard of him, but what do you think of his concept of like the singularity and like where things are going from, you know, where things are versus the future? Mm, he's spot on. I think he's absolutely correct. What he basically has done is he's predicting that... Um, perhaps 20, 25 years at most, all of today's advanced technologies will have converged because they're all advancing at the rate of Moore's law, which is to say artificial intelligence, computers, nanotech, biotech, genetic engineering, robotics, space technology, all these things are advancing at the rate where they double in power and capacity and knowledge every 18 to 24 months and their cause have in that time. So what does that mean? It means that in a generation, the whole nature of reality is going to have changed unrecognizably and irrevocably, magically. It means that, among other things, you'll be able to live almost as long as you'd like to live and do so in a body that's at its peak. The implications are tremendous. Now, I'd say that actually Moore's Law hasn't just been going on since Gordon Moore formulated it back in the 50s. Or was it wasn't the early 60s. I don't know. It's actually been going on for about 200,000 years. It started out with the discovery of fire. And it took a long time to learn how to nap flint. And then a long time to domesticate an animal. and but um, it's like a stadium filling with water. Let's say there's a drop of water at the bottom of the stadium, and it doubles in size. A second drop comes after an hour. Well, you don't even notice it. Then it doubles again to four blocks after a half an hour. Then eight drops in 15 minutes. And by the time the stadium is half full, It'll go from barely noticing there's a glisten of water on the bottom of the stadium to the fact that you're drowning and it's overflowing. And that's what's happening with technology. But most people seem completely unaware of that. They're still stuck in the past. I mean, most people seem to have medieval mindsets. Maybe that's why Game of Thrones was such a cultural phenomenon. Don't ruin it for us, Doug. I haven't finished watching it yet. <laughs> oh. Well, it falls apart, in my opinion, towards the end. But actually, it's got some good lessons to teach. But if people 
just spent that much time learning actual history as opposed to fiction, it would be just as entertaining and more useful. But uh, answer the question, I, I did like Game of Thrones. It was a great entertainment, and it uh, actually showed some excellent values. Among them, what generally was swine, people that go into politics are, people that like to rule other people, horrible human beings that get what they deserve. At least they generally do in Game of Thrones, which I approve of. Well, good. Well, <laughs> I'll cut your Game of Thrones talk before we give any spoilers, but it's interesting. I, I think you're right. And I look at books like Dan Brown. When they first came out, it was taking fiction and trying to pair it with history, which made it more believable. And you didn't know where history stopped and fiction began, but that made it pretty interesting, at least in my mind. And I thought that was why it did so well. Maybe that's me. Maybe other people just like the good story, but I, I like the, you know, the history part of it. And, you know, history is boring. And I think you've said this in the past, but I mean, history is written by the winners, right? So what is history? <laughs> Well, actually, on a very basic level, I'm a solipsist. And a solipsist is basically one that thinks that all of reality is, there are many, many varieties of solipsism, but it, all of reality is a uh, creation of your imagination. So, um, and talk about history. It's not just written by the winners. I mean, you don't really know what actually happened. I mean, you really don't know. All you know is what somebody wrote about it. And maybe he made a lot of that up. No, fake news exists. Yeah, I know there's this concept out there that a lot of people in Silicon Valley are, are in belief of, which is that, you know, that we live in a simulation. Philosophically, it's a really interesting conversation when you hear them talk about it. And I, I don't know about it enough, but I know enough to, to, to know that it's interesting enough to kind of look at. I don't know if you're, that kind of fits into your philosophies as well. Yeah, it does. It's been said correctly that reality is not only stranger than we imagine, but stranger than we can imagine. I really believe that's true. Yeah. Cool. Well, so I want to also get into the investing topic since this is an investing show. And you've had some great experiences in the investing world and some massive successes as well from the way I read it. Can you tell us about some of your most successful investments that you've made? Well, most recently, first of all, we've got to make a distinction here between an investment and a speculation. Unfortunately, most people confuse those things. Let me start with an investment. An investment is allocating capital in some place to create more capital uh, in the same way as you plant a seed of corn in order to get a whole corn plant back with several ears on it. That is proper investing. Speculating is different. Speculating is anticipating which way the mob is going to go. It's anticipating what the consequences of politically caused distortions in the marketplace will be. And increasingly, I'm of the opinion that it's becoming harder and harder to invest but, and more and more necessary to speculate, which is a pity because most people aren't very good at speculating. They don't understand economics. They don't understand the markets. So they don't even wind up speculating. They wind up gambling, uh, using the markets as a big casino, which is really not very smart. Recently, in, in the area of speculations and kind of investments, I got involved in pot stocks early, and pot stocks were very, very good to me. Um, I think they could go higher, but they're in bubble territory now. I, I bought a lot of Pharmaciello and a dime. It's trading at like $9 now. I had to wait four years for it to go public, though, so it wasn't like an overnight success. Uh, I've got a, a number of others that I'm waiting to go public. Um, got involved in the cryptocurrencies late, I'm sad to say, but they were very, very good to me because uh, I sold them close to the top because I am good at sniffing a bubble when I see a bubble. Uh, but I think that cryptocurrencies, like Bitcoin, are going to have a second kick at the cat because they're a unique and valuable technology in many ways. What am I looking at right now, um, other than those two things, which are a little bit passe, although they're going to get, uh, those games aren't entirely over. Let me go back to uh, my, um, what I've learned a lot about, because I've been in this area for about 40 years, it's mining stocks. Mining is about the worst business in the world. It's an incredibly stupid business. 
It's a destroyer of capital. That's the bad news. But the good news is that uh, mining stocks, especially exploration stocks, are very, very volatile, much more volatile than any other class of stocks. So um, it's possible to get 10 to 1, 100 to 1, even 1,000 to 1 over the course of a business cycle, five or six years. So I think that's the best place for a speculator to be right now. Investing, I don't know. All the markets are in bubble territory. Bonds are in a hyper bubble. Stock market's in a bubble. Real estate's floating on a sea of debt with interest rates at artificially low levels. I think we're looking at uh, a genuine catastrophe. This is going to be much worse and much different and much longer lasting than um, the Depression of 1929 to 1946. So that's, those are my investment views in a nutshell. So you, you call this the, the greater depression coming up. What do you mean by that? And what do you think the outcome is going to be? Well, the uh, state, the U.S. government in particular, is growing like a cancer, a late stage metastasizing cancer. And um, there's a good chance it's going to destroy the body that it's growing on, uh, which is to say American society. It's unfortunate that, look, I'm so glad Hillary Clinton wasn't elected. I mean, it's hard to think of a worse person. Well, I can think of lots of worse people, but she was certainly one of the worst people you could imagine to have been the president. On the other hand, Trump has absolutely no philosophical core. Uh, He's not a libertarian. He's an authoritarian. He flies by the seat of his pants. He surrounds himself with basically criminals. I'm talking about people like terrible judgment, terrible judgment when it comes to the people around him, people like Bolton and Pompeo and name anybody. I don't know where he he rounds these people up from. Then he winds up having to fire them. So um, this is not going to end well. And worse than that is that somehow Trump is equated in the mind of Bubis Americanus with the free market and business. Well, that's all untrue. So that when the economy collapses on his watch, which I'm I'm confident that it will, catastrophically, uh, they're going to blame capitalism, or something that looks like capitalism, it's not, for the uh, collapse. And then we're going to get somebody worse than Bernie Sanders, worse than Elizabeth Warren, somebody that's just uh, horrible, who's going to grab the economy in a stranglehold and strangle it with foreign exchange controls and runaway inflation. I mean, this is this is really serious. So there's an article out today that basically said that four out of 10 people in America believe in socialism, which I find pretty interesting. I guess they don't read history. But what I find fascinating is I read a book a number of years ago called The Fourth Turning, which I'm sure you've heard of. It's been written a long time ago. What fascinated me about it was, I mean, right now, based on that book, assuming that it's accurate, which I would say is not 100% accurate, but it's, it's more accurate than not, we're in a crisis period, which typically, historically, is some sort of war or other social unrest. But it doesn't always have to be war. Like, what do you think the outcome would be if that comes to pass? Because I, I think it's not just what's going to happen, but what's the other side of that? Like, what happens after bad things happen? Well... War is always, and without exception, a disaster. Sterner said war is the health of the state. I mean, the, the state feeds on war. Whenever the U.S. has a war, the state gets bigger and more powerful. This is true of every war we've had, absolutely including World War II, which people think was a good war for some reason. So uh, now we're not fighting any major war. We're finding all kinds of sport wars. Nobody even knows where U.S. troops are out shooting the natives. And, of course, they all think they're the good guys. They think this is still the days of um, World War II where you're passing out free chocolates to the local kids and stuff. So um, I just hope that uh, Trump doesn't do something really idiotic, perhaps accidentally, or perhaps lets one of his criminal advisors do it, like start a war with Iran, which would be pointless. I mean, uh, the average Iranian likes the average American. He likes the idea of America. He likes the uh, music. He likes the movies. He likes the lifestyle. He likes California girls. 
the average Iranian is fine with America. They're not fine with the U.S. government, which is different from America. And I promise you, if they start bombing, or well, God forbid, I, I don't know, they can't be that stupid, but who knows, actually invade the place, uh, this can get totally out of control. So, yeah. Well, I want to I want to get back to the investing theme because I think that certainly everyone's going to have a polarized opinion about you know war and and Trump and all that. But I want to get back in the investing theme because you talk about some of these successful investments you made. But how do you identify some of these trends early on and trends that have legs? As opposed, I mean, I'm sure you could kind of put a hundred investments in various places and hope they succeed. But like, how do you identify them early? Well, for one thing, you want to be someplace that nobody else is. Everybody sees themselves as a contrarian today. It's very fashionable to say you're a contrarian. But um, actually, the things that um, tend to work out best are the things that I'm most afraid of when I get into. That's one thing. But you can get in way too early, too. So it's good to wait until it looks like the trend has really turned upwards. So unfashionable, you've got good arguments that make sense to you, even if they don't make sense to anybody else. And you wait until the trend turns. So, okay. Uh, so where do you go right now? The only thing I can see that's cheap. Well, there are some things that are cheap, like Russian bonds. You can get short maturity, like one year to maturity. Russian bonds, uh, not state bonds, but commercial bonds, with um, maybe uh, an eight percent coupon selling at eighty-five. That's like a yield to maturity of over twenty percent, uh, and I think relatively low risk. So that's interesting. I think um, there's deals in Russia, which is uh, very underrated and is not the uh, devil incarnate that uh, you'll hear the talking heads talking about. So that's interesting. I think commodities right now, in real terms, commodities are at about the cheapest level in history. Now, that's nothing new. Commodities are the longest bear market in all of history. They've been going down for 5,000 years relative to other things. And they'll keep going down because of the singularity until they almost reach the value of the software that it takes to rearrange the atoms. But that said, right now, as we speak, corn, soybeans, sugar, coffee, cotton, cattle, almost all of them are at historic lows in real terms. And I think we could have an upside explosion in them. And gold and silver, and the crappy little stock companies that explore for them, I think the potential exists for another 100 to 1 shot in that market. And that's all you need to know, frankly. Yeah, commodities have been fascinating. I know a lot of people are talking up commodities because they're cheap and they're the only value you can find out there. And uh, I would put farmland in there as, as one of those value plays. But, but yet the prices still keep getting cheaper. And we had a famous investor on here recently, um, Vic uh, Sperandio, basically his thesis, he's like, well, as long as you have low rates, then commodity prices will remain cheap. And if rates can get lower, then that'll just kind of keep pushing pushing them down. So I don't know if you think that there's going to be something that would actually cause that price to, to rise, I mean, especially for farmland. That To me, it's puzzling why it's still so cheap. Well, farmers can't make any money right now. I have a lot of land here in Argentina and Uruguay, and uh, costs are quite cheap here in terms of labor and such anyway, and land prices, and nobody can make any money, even here. But the the best cure for uh, low commodity prices is low commodity prices. So that's going to turn around. Uh, So now is a good time to buy farmland. Although, once again, looking down the road 20 years from now, uh, people are going to be able to grow food vertically in buildings and cities and so forth. All the technology is changing in many ways here in farm countries. And I'm speaking to you from farm. I'm looking over a field of 80 hectares of soybeans right now. So <laughs> you know, I, I'm kind of like boots on the ground with this stuff. But, um, like you found your own Galt's Gulch down there in Argentina, right? <laughs> uh, well, it's interesting. I, I founded this com- community down there. It's, uh, as an investment, not a good idea, but it was an interesting adventure. We picked up a wine-growing town surrounded by vineyards, thousands of hectares of vineyards and and bodegas and wineries, small town, 10,000 people, very nice, pleasant. 
and uh, put in a golf course and a polo field and fantastic gymnasium and all kinds of stuff. So, yeah, I've done real estate, but I don't believe in real estate development either. I mean, you make money in real estate development if you get in during a bull market and you get out before the bear market strikes. Anyway, long story. We could talk about all this stuff. Uh, I'm pretty bearish on everything in the economy and investments generally, except for gold. I think people ought to buy a lot of gold. It's easy to do. And buy a lot of silver. Uh, more speculative. It's an industrial metal as much as anything else. But um, it's very cheap. I'd buy that too. You know, you can't store things like copper and cobalt and nickel very easily. Uh, you've got to buy them through financial instruments. But uh, buy gold and silver physically, the coins. So Nickel, you raise a funny story. Uh, I don't know if you heard the story. With, I think it was Kyle Bass who um, was speculating on nickel. He wanted to get like $2 million worth of nickels, like U.S. coinage, because basically his thesis was you could, at the time, you could melt it down and sell the nickel component and you could make a profit off of our currency. And he, <laughs> as the story goes, you know, he, the, the bank said, well, we don't have that many nickels. We have to call the treasury. And they said, well, why does he want it? He said, well, tell him I like nickels. <laughs> like, what do you mean, why? <laughs> but um, yeah, well, no. You know, it's amazing. The, the U.S. government, which destroys everything it touches, you know, it used to be until 1933, you had a $20 bill in your pocket. You could take it down to the bank and change it for a $20 double eagle gold coin. And then they reneged on that. And then in 1966, Johnson took all the silver out of uh, coins and uh, replaced it with pot metal. It kind of looks like silver, easy to mistake. It doesn't sound the same when you flip the coin, but it looks like silver. And then, of course, they did the same thing with the penny, which used to be copper. And they replaced that with zinc. But even zinc is too expensive now to make pennies out of. Pennies worth more than a penny. And the same is true, as you pointed out, with nickels. So this is why the, the government is going to try to go to a completely digital currency and get rid of cash entirely. Because if you use the government's digital currency, they'll know absolutely everything. You're buying and selling, and if they don't like you, uh, they'll simply steal all your money or block your account or something like that. In fact, I don't know if you're aware of the fact that um, if you're accused, not adjudicated, but accused of owing over $50,000 in taxes, they will take your U.S. passport away. Were you aware of that? Yeah, I'd read a story that if you owe taxes, they can take your passport, yeah. Well, it's true because there's a guy that used to work for me that this has actually happened to. So this is firsthand information I'm giving you. Interesting. So you're great at speculating and finding trends early, but how do you know when the trend's over? I mean, you talked about how you know you get out of cryptocurrencies before they peaked, which you know we did, we did uh, some of that as well, just because things are getting a little nutty, nutty. But how do you know when the when the trend is coming close to the end? Well. Generally speaking, people lose interest in it, and you don't hear much about it. So that's why I'm getting interested in, in the cryptos now, kind of like Bitcoin 2.0 versions, where these things actually serve a, a real useful purpose. I mean, Bitcoin itself is just a transfer mechanism, but very valuable uh, in that context, especially in the three quarters of the world's countries that have block currencies. So... You just have to look at everything and figure it out. I'm not going to get interested in the stock market again, for instance, until the average guy is so sick of it, he's not even going to know it exists. He's not going to want to know it exists. So that'll be a good time to get back in it. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about getting back in. What I mean is at the top, like how do you know where to get out at the at the top or, or close to, the, obviously we, we all want to get out at the top, but we, you know, no one ever does. So how do you know like, when you're going to cash in your chips and take your profits and leave? You want to know the best single indicator? When I used to play polo, and I don't anymore, it was going to parties with polo people. And you just listen. They're not very bright as a general rule. I mean, they're like, tend to be rich athletes. When they're talking about something that seems hot, you should listen because it's probably exactly the opposite of what you should be doing. So, well, not many people go to polo parties. Okay. Uh, go to your local drugstore and look at the magazines and just see what's on the front cover of all these magazines. I mean, Business Week itself 
is historically a wonderful etiquette, uh, contrary indicator. When they ran their cover on the death of mining, it was the bottom of the mining market. They wrote, ran a cover on the death of securities. It was the bottom of the stock market. When they ran something about inflation out of control, you know, and the government's printing wind buttons and that stuff, inflation was about to collapse. Now, these idiots at the Federal Reserve, which ought to be abolished, incidentally, uh, want to get inflation up. Well, they're going to get their wish. You're going to see 10 or 15 or 20% inflation in the years to come. Because all that money they created to paper over the crisis over the last 10 years still exists. It's just going to come out of the financial markets and into the retail markets. So I don't know. Every time is different, but always the same at the same time. So um, my best advice is forget about the stock market. Really forget about the bond market. Forget about the real estate market and, and look for speculations and buy a lot of gold. And also hold U.S. dollars because right now U.S. dollars are losing several percent per year in value. Okay, that's tough. But it's better to use, lose a few percent per year than wind up uh, losing half of it overnight. Yeah, yeah, I know you you made a point. I mean, I think it was was a Mark Twain who said, you know, history is is never the same, but it usually rhymes. So, yeah. you know, you cer- certainly we can look at look at past history as what could come, uh, you know, <clears throat> come in the future. But I've heard this story before, but I think it'd be valuable for the other listeners to hear. You've had three successes in the past that should have been failures. Like, what did you learn from those experiences? Maybe you could tell the listeners about the experiences themselves, and then maybe what you learned. Oh, you mean in mining stocks? Uh, yeah. Yeah, there were three. <laughs> very funny. During the great bull market at the end of the 90s, I had a big position in a company that was an accident. In other words, they were diamond mining off the coast of Namibia. They didn't do that, but they had a what looked like a nothing property in Labrador. They made one of the biggest nickel strikes in history. So the stock I had at a quarter with a warrant, incidentally, and I bought more on the way up. Uh, went to about $250. That was Diamond Fields. And one was a fraud. It was Briex, biggest fraud in mining history. Great story. A gold discovery in Indonesia. And uh, I had a lot of that. But it got really expensive from like a dollar a share to $150 a share. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. What the hell's going on here? This has got a bigger market cap than Freeport McMoran. Most people know nothing about mining. And so I sold it all. So I got lucky on a, a fraud. I didn't know it was a fraud. Nobody else knew it was a fraud until, until it was unveiled. And the other one was a psychotic break where there was a broker that I knew in Chicago, a uh, very big broker, and he specialized in resource stocks. And I don't know why. He's dead now. His name was Blake. And uh, he just put everything he and his clients had into Nevson which incidentally is still around, which is rare in these companies, and is actually a successful company. But he took that stock from $1 to $20. Well, compared to Diamond Fields and Briex, that's not a big hit, but I had a big position in it with warrants. So I call that one my psychotic break, unpredictable. Who could have predicted that he'd go crazy and do that? So this stuff happens in these small volatile markets, but it also happens in big markets, like it's happening today with Uber and Lyft and all these unicorns coming public, this is going to be a story with a very unhappy ending for a lot of people. Yeah, I know a lot of people are feeling uneasy, at least that's what I'm getting from talking to people, is they're uneasy about the stock market and they want to be somewhere else. They want to be in alternatives or something different because you know they see that things don't make sense. The nice thing about technology, it allows us to connect information. So in the old days, it might have been more secretive or less public. But now, I mean, there, there are no secrets. <laughs> you know, So it's interesting to see the public opinion of, of where things are going. So I, I find it hard to believe that things are going to continue to go up. But as I said, uh, what do they say? The, uh, the bull markets don't end on a whimper. They end on a bang. So there's probably going to be something that's going to stop it. But uh, I'm curious on what that will be. What's, ca- what's causing this is actually the Federal Reserve printing money. I mean, you create trillions and trillions of dollars and inject them into the banking system, which is what they've been doing for the last 10 years, and that money is going to go somewhere. It's why the rich have been getting richer, why the little guys have been getting screwed. Now, the solution to the problem 
is to abolish the Federal Reserve and go back to a commodity money. That isn't going to happen. So it's just going to end. It's going to end just disastrously. And, you know, it's interesting that this is all taking place in the tech industry. It'll flow into the resource industry next. I'm pretty confident of that. But, uh, you know, technology. I mean, I'm all for it. I love technology. But in the investment world, there's a saying, high tech, big wreck. And we're getting to the big wreck stage. I mean, that these companies in a rapidly evolving technological environment where everything could change overnight that are worth tens and scores and hundreds of millions of dollars, include me out. Yeah, it's interesting. So let's, um, I got two more questions for you and then we'll wrap it up. So what are some simple rules that maybe some of the listeners can take away from your, your experience that they can use for their own investing? Well, look. Or, got, or speculation. I think, I think I've written five books that are nonfiction. They're all on Amazon. So, and they're inexpensive like used books are these days. So I buy those books, International Man, Crisis Investing, Strategic Investing, probably the best one is Crisis Investing for the rest of the 90s. And I have two other books, Totally Incorrect 1 and Totally Incorrect 2. And get the two novels because there's a lot in those novels that, um, like I said, you can't say in, in, in nonfiction. So that's Speculator and um, Drug Lord. I'll do that. Uh, go on internationalman.com. Go to caseyresearch.com also. And other than that, I think I've thrown out a few ideas and investment tips. But, you know, as I think I heard you say at the beginning of the show, Kirk, you know, these people have to do their own thinking and their own due diligence. I don't want anybody following my advice. Yeah. And Doug, we really appreciate having you on the show. I mean, I love the fact that we can share this with our audience because I know I've followed a lot of your stuff for years. And it's, to me, it's fascinating you know, from a listener's perspective, anyone listening can can take away from this is the fact that we all have our own different opinions and you need to find one that works for you and fits with your investing personality. And And Doug has certainly been extremely successful speculating over the years. So obviously he's uh, he's not wrong on, on a number of things, but I think it has to work for each one of you. So certainly do your own research and your own due diligence. I highly recommend that for everybody. But um, yeah, any other final takeaways, Doug, before we uh, let you go here? Well, we could go on for hours, <laughs> but what would be the point? So no, I guess the answer is no. It's been a pleasure talking to you though, Kirk. Well, great. Well, thanks for coming on, Doug. Hopefully we'll have you on in the future because I know there's certainly when the greater depression hits, we'll probably want to hear from you and what the next best speculation is coming up. So thanks again for your time. Okay. Look forward to talking to you again. Hey, Money Tree Podcast listeners, we've had a great run over the last five years. We've had lots of great guests over that time. Guests like Joe Saul Sihai, Susie Orman, Art Laffer, Burton Malkiel, Peter Schiff, and more. We've had lots of great content too, like what happens when somebody steals a half a million dollars from you, tax loopholes for the rich, investing like a billionaire, why men and women approach investing differently, how to outlive your money tax liens, peer-to-peer lending, asset protection, and more. And we've had lots of great questions from you, our audience, as well, and we really appreciate it. But now we need your help. We want to know what you want to listen to, what topics, guests, and content you value most. This is your chance, Money Tree Podcast listeners. We don't ask frequently, but when we do, the door is wide open for you to give us your thoughts, good, bad, and ugly. What do you want to hear more of? What do you want to hear less of? All this helps to make a better show for you. So many of you have already provided your feedback, and it's going to make an exciting 2019 of great content ahead. We're going to be closing the survey soon, so make sure you leave your feedback now. If having a say in your favorite podcast isn't enough, we're also going to be providing monthly promotions to anyone on our email list. The recent promotion was an overwhelming success. We had lots of positive feedback and input from our listeners. We're going to continue to create great shows for you, and they'll be focused on the content that you suggested. Each month, we're going to have a new promotion. We can't tell you now quite what we have in store for you because we want it to be a surprise, but we know that you're going to be excited. We have some special opportunities that money can't buy. We're excited to bring these to you through the year 2019, but in order to qualify for these promotions, we need to hear from you. In order to qualify, you're going to need to sign up for our email list first. When you do, 
you're going to have an additional chance to win by completing our Money Tree Podcast survey. Go to moneytreepodcast.com slash survey 2019 to give us your feedback and the additional chance to win. We'll be posting the name of the winner on our website. So if you entered the promotion, please check the website to see that you've won. We also have great shows lined up in the near future with some special guests that you're not going to want to miss. I can't wait to publish these interviews. They're very exciting. So go to moneytreepodcast.com slash survey 2019 to sign up and we'll enter you into our monthly promotion. Thanks again for listening. And remember, invest in your life. Thank you for listening to the Money Tree Investing Podcast. Visit us at moneytreepodcast.com for more free investing resources.